You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to this episode of The Zeitgeist. I am really pleased to have with me uh, two um, people today. One, uh, Eric Langenbacher, who is the uh, senior fellow and director of our uh, program on society, culture, and politics. Uh, and also a special guest, um, non-resident fellow at AICGS, uh, Julian Müller-Kaller, who is, uh, in addition to his affiliation with us, a resident fellow at the Atlantic Council, uh, where he works on things like strategic foresight and global trends. And we're here today. The proximate cause of our discussion is the election that happened over the weekend in the city-state of Hamburg, uh, where the Social Democrats uh, came up with an uh, you know, an unusual or a rare victory uh, for them, I would say, and we'll talk a little bit about what that uh, what that it, it signifies, and uh, and the broader uh, you know reorganization of the political landscape uh, in Germany. We are at a fascinating period where tensions that have been uh, building up inside the party system are being unleashed uh, across the country and throughout uh, most of the uh, major parties. And uh, it's a great time to talk about that. So um, I'm going to turn to Eric at this point. So Eric, um, please, why don't you tell us a little bit about, uh, about what we've just witnessed uh, in Hamburg and, uh, and, and what that might mean? Sure. So I guess first I would say that one of the reasons that we care so much about Hamburg this year, there's only 1.9 million people or so in Hamburg. It's a relatively small place, but... Beautiful place. Very beautiful, especially the new Elbphilharmonie, I must say. Yeah. In any case, uh, it's the only regional election in Germany this year. We had several last year. We're going to have several next year. So as a referendum on what's going on at the national level, this is our only real opportunity to see what voters in um, Germany are thinking. This well, is sort of a barometer that... We, exactly. We Although I, I'm sure we'll talk about this later on, but there's a possibility that we'll have an unexpected election in the state of Thuringia, but we shall see about that. Anyway, it was a very interesting electoral result. The SPD won the election with about 39% of the vote, but one should note that this is down over 6% from their uh, result back in 2015. The Greens came in second with 24% of the vote. They almost doubled their vote share from the last election. The CDU had a pretty bad uh, night, only 11.2% of the vote, down just a little less than 5% from the last time around. The left party did about the same with 9.1% of the vote. The AFD was down almost a percent to 5.3%, and the FTP didn't make it over the 5% threshold in the end uh, with only 4.9% of the vote. Um, I would mention two other things that I think are fascinating about this particular election. The first is the turnout was quite high. In fact, it was up 6.7% to 63.2% of the electorate. Uh, so I think that shows just how motivated and mobilized German voters uh, are today. The other thing I would mention is that Hamburg has a really interesting electoral system. This is where my academic hat goes on, perhaps, for a moment. Uh, they have a mixed-member proportional system for 123 seats in their unicameral parliament. But what's fascinating is that each voter gets up to 10 votes 
five votes for constituency candidates. I think they have 17 constituencies in the city-state. And then they get five votes for a um, Landesliste, right? So a, a statewide uh, list. And so they actually had four million votes um, cast um, with, what, 1.9 million actual residents. So with that, I thought that we could now talk a little bit about what this means. So analyze these results and uh, maybe uh, Julian, who has studied uh, the SPD quite a bit um, over the years, as well as populism, maybe you have some um, immediate reactions to the SPD's result. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to, to talk about German politics. Um, I, would, I would start by saying that um, the you know, results in Hamburg are somewhat limited if we want to look at more broader terms and trends in German politics. Uh, city states uh, are always a somewhat a special case in German elections, whether it's uh, Berlin, Bremen or Hamburg. However, uh, it is true that those results that you just mentioned, Eric, are somewhat um, an indication to where German politics uh, could lead, especially for the SPD and the TDU, and I'm sure you, Jeff, uh, will talk about the TDU a little bit more. But for the SPD, what was remarkable was that uh, Chencher, the um, governing uh, city mayor, deliberately didn't want the leadership to be present for campaigning uh, on his behalf. So the newly uh, elected um, leadership of the SPD, uh, Saskia Esken and um, Walter Borians uh, deliberately not came to Hamburg. Uh, if I can interject there, yes. I mean, I, th I think part of the, I agree it's an interesting characteristic. I mean, Hamburg has always been a more conservative, um, social democratic uh, milieu than Germany as a whole, and as 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 you say, there's a new leadership duo at the national level in the SPD, which is I think generally perceived to be you know quite f much farther left. Um, than than the predecessor. So so is that the only dynamic uh, at work there? The sort of uh, left versus centrist uh, within the SPD. Absolutely. Well, yes. On the one hand, on the other hand, it is also the hometown of the contender who lost against uh, that duo. So Olaf Scholz, the current uh, finance minister, um, who ran for SPD leadership and and lost uh, to the duo. Um, and he, of course, is a star because he was the mayor before uh, in Hamburg and uh, he was very popular um, and. What you have, you know, Merkel representing somewhat like a a mother of political Germany, you have um, in Hamburg with the SPD. So um, Olaf Scholz was seen like a Landesvater, like a father of the of the state. And Chencher, his successor, uh, has a similar uh, stigma around him, and he's very popular. Yeah, um, what, so th this is a not very subtle reminder, I think, to social democrats that. Hamburg is one of the few places where they still win elections. Absolutely, and and they're and they are doing so under the direction you know set forth uh, years ago by Olaf Scholz. Um, Absolutely. So maybe trying you know or inspiring a little bit of buyer's remorse among social democrats <laughs> across I, I mean, the country. I find that to be really fascinating though, because overall this could have been spun as a really bad result for the SPD exactly. in Hamburg because they lost more votes than any other party compared to 2015. Exactly. But instead, it's being spun exactly the uh, in the opposite direction. So I call it like the anti-Chicken Little kind of result that the sky is not falling after all and that the SPD can do better than, what is it, 14, 15 percent well, as the they're polling nationally? The reason for that was because polling a couple of weeks and months ago suggested that they would actually even be close to what the Greens are at the moment. So within the last couple of weeks, they really gained traction 
And despite bad polling in the beginning and despite actually also some scandals that the Hamburger SPD uh, had to suffer from, um, if we think about the Cum-Ex and the Cum-Cum scandal where Hamburg authorities deliberately delayed an investigation into um, banking fraud in order to save them from prosecution. So there were quite some problems uh, in Hamburg. And despite all of that, uh, the, the SPD did um, comparatively well. Um, so that that's the reason why they're um, marketing it is at a, as a victory, even though they lost, as you said, six percent of the vote and um, mm. had a lot of people moving to the Greens uh, and even to um, to the Conservatives, even though they lost themselves uh, quite significantly and had the worst uh, result in history of um, the state politics in Hamburg. Yeah, and I want to pick up because uh, Julian, you pointed out that uh, just a couple of months ago, and uh, if I look at the polling numbers. You know, back in November, so just three months ago, the Greens and the SPD were neck and neck in the in this in the polls in the city uh, of Hamburg, and uh, I think this may connect to a trend that we've seen uh, across um, German politics uh, over the last year, and that is there is a coalescing um, in the final weeks of a campaign around the candidate who is perceived to be, you know, a likely victor um, and uh, and to play a strong role in that way. We saw it in all three of the state elections in Eastern Germany last year. And in each case, it was a different party that benefited. In the state of Saxony, it was the CDU. Uh, in Brandenburg, it was the SPD. Uh, and then uh, in, uh, in the state of uh, Thuringia, it was the left party. Uh, in each case, an incumbent minister president who gains uh, strength at the end. Um, and, and we see the same thing in Hamburg, uh, I think. And so I wonder if we want to talk a little bit about that trend uh, as something that increasingly um, it characterizes German politics. Well, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if that's just a regional trend, because I remember at the last Bundestag's election in 2017, uh, the two governing parties, the SPD and the CDU slash CSU, they plummeted in like the weekend before the election. I mean, they were, they were down two to four percent from the last polling that was done. So if this is indeed a new trend, it would um, really have ramifications at the national level as well. Absolutely. I think what you describe um, somewhat are two trends happening at the same time. What we see in all Western democracies, for honestly speaking, whether it is here in the United States or in, in other European uh, countries, is a somewhat deliberate urge for change. Um, Anti-establishment uh, parties or candidates um, are rising and uh, they gain a lot of traction uh, among among voters. At the same time, and that speaks to the um, trend that you described, the center somewhat aligns around a candidate that they presume stands for stability. Um, in even you know in Thuringia, it was a, a candidate from the left, um, which um, allegedly is not necessarily the center. But Bodo Ramelow um, is a very centrist um, link politician who might as well be a social democrat in other states. Mm -hmm. And all of the people who are somewhat opposing that trend for change, and whether that gets exemplified through voting for the AfD or on the other end, voting for the Greens, who are somewhat also an anti-establishment party at the time, because most of the people don't really remember them, especially the young people who uh, they gain a lot of support from, don't really remember them to be in government because it's mm -hmm. such a long time ago. And then this, the center who opposes that change really 
surrounds among a candidate who they think stands for stability. We've seen that in Hamburg, we've seen that in Thuringia, um, and we've seen that in, in other states as well. So those are two trends uh, happening at the same time. People who deliberately asking for change, basically voting in the radical version for the AfD um, and in the progressive version for the for the Greens. But what's interesting is how poorly the AfD, the alternative for Germany, actually did in the Hamburg election. They barely scraped over the 5% threshold to make it into the parliament, and they were down almost a percent from the last time. So I wonder what this means for the AfD's electoral prospects going forward, especially given that they've come off some very good results for them in the eastern German um, uh, regions. So I can't help but think that one of the things that we've observed about the AFD in recent years is they've become increasingly Easternized. They've been taking on a very kind of like Eastern German identity. They've been really pushing uh, ideas and policies that seem to resonate more with an Eastern electorate. So I wonder if Hamburg is the first kind of result in the West that shows that Western voters aren't up for an increasingly Easternized AFD. Or do you think that there's another reason why the AFD did so poorly compared to their last string of successes? Well, I would say that on the one hand, I agree with you uh, that it is um, they are more they're gaining more traction in the east. On the other hand, and this is um, what I was say- saying in the beginning, that the implications from a state city or city-state elections uh, can't really be projected on the um, on this on the whole Germany level because. What we see is, yes, east and west, but also rural and urban areas, right? So the AfD is particularly strong, um, just like any other populist candidate, whether we look at uh, Marine Le Pen in France or Donald Trump here in the United States. It's particularly the rural areas um, that, uh, you know, um, where, the vote, where the vote and the electorate comes from. So city of Hamburg, obviously, being mostly urbanized, um, it is not surprising that the AfD... Um, doesn't do so well as, uh, let's say, for instance, in Thuringia or more rural uh, states in Germany. Um, but yes, uh, given the circumstances of the political climate in Germany, um, the weeks leading up to the election, you have the political catastrophe in Thuringia where uh, the backlash was immense, uh, especially because it was um, Björn Höcke, who uh, is one of the most radical representatives of the AfD, basically electing a minister-president from the FDP. Um, And you had the attacks in Hanau, um, which really were somewhat of an awakening in Germany that right-wing terrorism... Um, is 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 an is an urgent uh, matter of of concern. Um, so you have this leading up to the Hamburg uh, election, and so what it, w- it I would also say it was kind of a voter response to that, um, and being mm-hmm. aware of the climate that the AfD through their rhetoric also has caused. And, and I think you know, Eric, you, you I think you rightly point out there is you know, the AfD has hit a plateau at the national level in Germany. If you look at their current support. 13, 14%. It's basically identical to their 2017 um, support in the Bundestag election, which, you know, rounds up to 13%. So not very much movement. Um, And in fact, in a lot of Western German states, they're in single digits, uh, not only in Hamburg, but Hamburg, I think, is probably the most, uh, is is one of their worst um, territories. So um, this, but, but what we see is the ability of the AFD to destabilize East German politics. That's certainly uh, one of the key messages or lessons from uh, the Thuringia uh, mess. Um, But before we talk more about the AFD, I want to 
I think there's always a tendency in the uh, outside analysis in the uh, of of German politics to focus on the AFD, and there are legitimate reasons for that because they represent a real um, break with uh, the generally held perceptions of Germany's uh, of Germany's history, uh, of Germany's responsibility, um, and and the language that they make use of is in some cases truly shocking. But it's not the only story, and I think the story of the Greens um, is, is certainly in terms of sheer numbers, is uh, is much bigger than the story of the the AFD. And it, just in Hamburg, you see you know, the the more than doubling or the, the doubling of their support from the last election. If you look at the national level, they are two and a half times the support that they won in two thousand seventeen. And in fact, I think in the most uh, in the most recent polling, you know, they're within three or four points of uh, of the of the CDU at the national level. So I think that is another important thing to think about. What does that mean in a Hamburg context? But what does it mean more generally? Absolutely, I think you allude to a very interesting point, uh, and that speaks to this narrative of people wanting to see see change and are somewhat frustrated with the political establishment. Um, you have to think about the fact that in Germany. Uh, I think three of the last four coalitions were grand coalitions. So it was uh, a coalition between the two Volksparteien um, representing the middle, uh, the conservative CDU and CSU and uh, the, the Social Democrats. So in in old German politics, you always basically had a dichotomy of the two grand uh, parties and then they're finding a junior partner with whom they either govern center-left or center-right. Um, due to the changing political landscape, you basically didn't have those opportunities anymore and the two big parties needed to mm -hmm. govern together. If you look at kind of the levels of support, it, it is in constant decline. And the new two grand or the new grand coalition would might as well be CDU and Green uh, right. looking at the polls and the. But I, I disagree slightly. I I don't disagree that people aren't looking for change. Sure they are, but I think it's a little bit more complex than that. Um, there's a brilliant analysis that looks at how a new cleavage um, alignment has emerged in Germany and in many other kind of Western democracies. So you used to have the old socioeconomic cleavage, and that's where the CDU and the SPD were firmly established, with the other parties kind of creating a niche, but based on one kind of issue dimension. Now we have this new issue dimension that Ronald Engelhardt and others call a postmodern issue um, dimension, which isn't about kind of taxation and government spending as much as it is about cultural and identity issues. And on this new kind of cleavage, you have the Greens on the one hand and the AFD and other kind of right populist parties on the other hand. I think that's what's complicated about German politics right now. And I also think that it's one of the reasons that the two catch-all parties, the SPD and the CDU, have had such a challenge to kind of reinvent themselves for this new kind of reality. And it's very possible that they won't be able to because they're so they're such products of that old socioeconomic cleavage, which I think brings up the very poor result of the CDU in this regard. I mean, I've been a little um, uncomfortable with some of the media headlines about how apocalyptic it actually is. If you look at the polling, it is true that the CDU went down in about the month before the election, but they went from maybe 14% to 12% and then they ended up just over 11%. So you could see a decline happening, but it wasn't a precipitous kind of collapse, right? They, they well, weren't doing as well as they were doing last time. The, so. re the reason why it is so significant for the CDU, and I agree with you entirely, right? With the exception of Ole von Beust, who um, was the predecessor of um, 
Uh, Olaf Scholz, CDU, CDU mayor, mayor of Hamburg. Um, they've never been really strong in Hamburg in the first place. However, this result comes at a time where the CDU is in turmoil. And after years and almost decades of Angela Merkel's leadership, that is a very new situation for the CDU. Usually, uh, in the last couple of years, headlines about the SPD being in disarray have dominated uh, newspapers in Germany. And now, uh, with the um, stepping down of, of AKK, Annegret kram karrenbauer you kind of have the CDU in turmoil and they don't really know um, how long Merkel can still be uh, chancellor and it depends on who is going to be her successor as party leader. Uh, and... That's really new situation for the CDU because the CDU as a conservative party has always been very almost addicted to power. So the reason why Angela Merkel was somewhat able to reform the CDU in a more progressive way was because she guaranteed numbers. I mean, they almost won uh, a majority alone um, when she was when she was uh, running for for re-election, and that is a really new situation. So this morning, um, Armin Laschet. Uh, and Jens Spahn on the one hand and um, uh, Friedrich Merz uh, on the other declared their will to um, enter the race for a new party leadership. And they both propose a very different vision of where the CDU is supposed to go. Armin Laschet is kind of seen as the natural successor to Merkel, somewhat like AKK was um, one and a half years ago. So he represents more the moderate Merkel flu like wing in the mm -hmm. CDU. However, um, Friedrich Merz stands more for the conservative side and the reinventing the conservative aspects and of the CDU. sharpening the distinctions Absolutely. to other, other parties. And he, he believes that AfD voters are somewhat frustrated conservatives who abandoned the CDU and um, be able to be won back, so to say. And Laschet uh, sees it more that a lot of the support that the CDU has lost has gone to the Greens or the SPD. So it will also be, the, the quest for new leadership will be a quest for the soul of the CDU, uh, I believe. And mm -hmm. it will be very interesting to watch those trends playing out um, in the next couple of weeks. And there's a third candidate out there as well, Norbert Röttgen, um, well-known certainly outside of Germany as the chairman of the Bundestag's Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, at, who announced his candidacy last week. Um, so we've got, in the next two months, uh, April 25th, there will be an election of a new CDU uh, chairman, who I think it's obvious it will be a, a man who wins. Uh, that I think is going to, uh, you know, really define the next couple of months um, of uh, of debate over not just the out what what Hamburg meant or what Turingen meant, but uh, what what the overall direction of German politics is. Oh, oh, that's for sure. But I mean, I don't think that the next CDU leader is going to change the soul of a party. I mean, parties don't have souls, right? I mean, parties are election winning <laughs> machines. They're all about trying to get power. I mean, it's really about tactics and strategy. And, you know, certainly the CDU has a dilemma right now because their their strategy so far has been that they're not going to work with the left party ever. They're not going to work with the AFD. But especially in Eastern German contexts, I mean, you can't have it both ways. I mean, you're going to have to make it a choice to 
work with whatever that means, one of the two kind of alternatives. So I don't know. I, I mean, the CDU as a catch-all party, like all catch-all parties, can tack to the left, can tack to the right. And I think it's really about new kind of strategic, uh, a new strategic uh, direction for the party. And I mean, that's one thing that's that's really on Merkel. I mean, I will, uh, I will agree with that kind of criticism that she's never had the vision thing, as people have put it. She's had this kind of murky centrism, which worked for a long time, but now they just need to kind of redefine find themselves and, and figure out which way they're going to go. Well, and I think that's a part of the, you know, last week at the Munich Security Conference, uh, Armin Laschet, who, uh, as Julian mentioned, is in many ways, you know, he would represent a certain continuity um, of Merkel's tenure because he's a centrist, he's pragmatic. Um, on the other hand, uh, he was asked and given the opportunity, he went on at some length um, criticizing Merkel's uh, policy um, toward the European Union, for example. Um, and he was, uh, you know, without using harsh words, his judgment, I think, was pretty um, uh, remarkable because he said that this coalition she leads um, put Europe um, in the headline of its coalition agreement and hasn't done much. Um, and, and so I think part of it is simply you know, emerging from the uh, kind of inertia that uh, has developed in this government over the last couple of years and having some ideas, any ideas, uh, that Germany is willing to push forward uh, on the national level and internationally um, that may, may define uh, this, uh, this battle. It was certainly a centerpiece of what Norbert Rutgen, um had to say in his announcement last week. So I think it's uh, maybe not a battle for the soul, but a battle to show that, uh, that, that these uh, candidates can appeal to a German electorate that is looking for you know, the practical ways Germany will take, uh, you know, advance German interests and lead uh, in a broader uh, context. I agree entirely. Um, I mean, insider reports actually have also um, told that uh, when there was this dinner between Merkel and Macron, Macron must have really gone out of his way and criticized uh, Merkel for being so reluctant to make decisions when it comes to Europe. I mean, it must have been almost a shouting match. The Financial Times reported it must have been quite remarkable. I don't think Merkel shouts. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, 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 it alludes to the fact that you just referred to, because at a time where, you know, we basically see a new bipolarity, especially in the tech realm, you've seen those decisions about Huawei, you see an American administration that really tries to push the Europeans to come on board uh, and antagonizing China in that sense, Europe needs leadership. And with the UK now uh, having left the European Union, it is up for Germany and France to fill, fulfill that leadership role. And that is, of course, very difficult if the governor, governing chancellor in Germany uh, is somewhat in a you know, transition phase of not being able to make somewhat uh, sophisticated decision because she is not the leader of her own party that she relies on for governing in the parliament. Uh, and the reason I said this with the soul is because as much as there are decisions that have to be made on the European level, decisions have to be made on the local and state level too. Mm -hmm. uh, as Eric alluded to, this um, Bundesparteitagsbeschluss, so the, the party um, uh, decision to not uh, have a, some kind of cooperation with the AfD on the right and the Linke on the left puts the CDU in especially eastern states in a very, very precarious and almost dangerous situation because there is basically no majority without 
any of the two. Yeah. And what this uh, the last weeks have really shown us and Thuringia have really shown us is that basically the leadership of the CDU, CDU doesn't have much of a say in terms of their state representative representatives um, on the local level. And that was what what brought the the Turing crisis uh, into display is because um, the the local head of the CDU actually in the beginning suggested to vote for Ramelow and then that was in violation of that party decision and then he had party uh, he had uh, he had members in his own fractions that wanted to um, cooperate mm -hmm. with the IFD so that it's it, it kind of shows that there's no real guidance at the moment and I think this will will be decided with the new quest for leadership yeah I think that the, this this um, real disconnect uh, between the, um, the the Western German um, desires, especially among CDU supporters, and the realities in Eastern Germany uh, is is a gap that is extremely wide, and it's causing uh, real tension. I, Eric, I, I agree completely that that you can't you can't rule out uh, working with everybody, and expect to remain relevant. Um, so if the CDU wants to be a national party and wants to be relevant in Eastern Germany, it needs a a different formula for how it deals with the AFD on the one hand and the left uh, on the other. Again, I think Norbert Röttgen uh, talked about this in his announcement. Um, we'll see whether that remains a part of the campaign for the CDU leadership. The fact that they've got a sort of you know, uh, one size fits all uh, approach that is is really um, ineffective, um, and whether people can think, uh, you know, in in new ways uh, about well, it. Well, you know, I was thinking about two things uh, just now. The first is that if you go back to the '80s and the '90s in German political discourse, there was this great fear of Americanization. Right. Like Schroeder, for instance, was the Americanization of a German chancellor. But maybe what we're seeing here is an Americanization of the German parties. Right. I mean, there is no real party leadership in the United States. Each state party, sometimes each individual representative defines being a Democrat or a Republican in many different ways. So maybe we're finally seeing that kind of impact on German politics as well. Or who knows, maybe it's even the Sovietization of German politics. If you think back to oh Gorbachev's Sinatra <laughs> doctrine in the late 1980s, that you know each Eastern Bloc state could go their own way. Um, you know, maybe maybe we're seeing that too. So, I mean, we're talking so much about structural change in German politics today and just in general. But you know, what kind of structural change is really what the the question is? And you know, maybe it's not as existential as we think, but it's just that Germans are going to have to learn, or the CDU is going to have to learn to do things differently. The diktats from Berlin are not going to be followed um, at the regional or local level to the same extent as they were before. Oh. I, I agree with that. The only thing that I would add to this is, I mean, Jeff, you've kind of mentioned it and saying a lot of a lot of the foreign press talks about the IFD and they yet they are only at fifteen percent compared to thirty five percent of the um, Front National in France and you know mm -hmm. close to fifty percent of Donald Trump here in the United States or Brexit in the UK. And I agree, uh, the support for right wing populists in Germany is not as significant as it is in other Western democracies. However. What Eric alluded to is it changed the governing possibility in the Bundestag significantly, and that's that's the new reality that the Volkspartei and um, yep. CDU and uh, CSU and SPD in particular have to have to deal with. Uh, it 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 
kind of re-raises the question of who to cooperate with and it changes the political landscape and that's the significance that the AfD even only with 15% has for the German political system and for new ways of finding alliances and and rally around uh, topics. But I want to go back to something that Jeff mentioned earlier which is I mean the AfD seems to suck all of the oxygen out of the room and we just talk about it incessantly but we should talk more about the Greens right because the fact that they were able to score over 20% of the vote in Hamburg, I think is very significant. It's not just that, you know, Hamburg ist anders, as as people would say about Berlin or any other place, but it shows that, you know, in the past, the Greens have spiked at different points in time. I remember, I think it was 2011, that they spiked to about 20%, and everybody was talking about the Greens being the new Volkspartei of the left. But, you know, what we've seen now Um, in a sustainable manner are very good results for the Greens at that very high level between 18-22% in region after region after region. Uh, Except the East. Well, except, yeah, yeah, except in the East. But, you know, I mean, maybe now it's time to start thinking again about, you know, whether the Greens are really the next big thing in German politics and whether they're going to be a true catch-all party of the center and the left. I agree. And if I might just, I know we're coming to the end of the podcast, but if I might just offer my opinion in that regard, I think the the, the Greens have a very solid um, foundation of support for people that support them because of their policies. It's maybe, it has risen over the last couple of years for sure. It's maybe between, you know, around 15%, I would say, for people voting for the Greens because they believe in in green policy. And I think the additional 10% that we're seeing currently being reflected in the polls is, as again, as I said earlier, somewhat a desire for change. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the succession of crisis, whether it is the financial crisis and then the migration crisis in Germany, somewhat eroded the trust in the problem-solving capacity of of the democratic establishment and especially the Volksparteien in in, uh, in in Germany. And I think the Greens are profiting from that. If you look at how Robert Harburg presents himself uh, and Annalena Baerbock, they are political outsiders, similar yep. to uh, you know the political outsiders that, that rise in, in other uh, Western democracies. And that has a certain appeal at the moment. And the Greens in the future need to decide whether they want to you know, remain that outsider status or whether they want to govern. The last yeah. coalition talks have actually shown that they want to take responsibility and that they have a certain desire to be in power. And the next uh, election will be very decisive because they might be offered, you know, ministries or a coalition uh, governing either leading a green-red-red coalition or um, being a junior partner for the conservatives. And that will be very decisive for the Greens as well um, because they are somewhat becoming a Volkspartei, a party mm-hmm. of the middle, and need to decide how much of an appeal they want to have within Germany. Well, you've left us something to talk about uh, in a future episode, and because you did not mention, Julian, the possibility they might actually win the election outright and, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, might have a green chancellor. So um, we can talk about that along with the Sinatra doctrine um, of the CDU uh, across, across Germany uh, on, on an upcoming edition of the Zeitgeist. I would also refer people uh, interested in the question of the Greens um, back to a recent episode where I talked with Reinhard Bütikofer um, about, uh, about the Greens uh, at the Euro 
European level and also in Germany. So you can go back and uh, hear his thoughts uh, on that. Our next episode of The Zeitgeist uh, will be with Michael Link uh, of the FDP. Uh, we'll talk to him very soon and we'll hear a bit about uh, where the FDP is headed, especially after uh, uh, Thuringia. Let me also put in a plug for those of you out there um, who may be interested in the DAAD um, fellowship here at AICGS. The DAAD is the German Academic Exchange Service, and uh, we, in partnership with the DAAD, host uh, several scholars uh, every year here at AICGS. Take a look at it on our website, um, and uh, we would love to have your applications and, uh, and perhaps welcome you here as a, a DAAD research fellow. So be on the lookout for that, and we will look forward to being with you on the next episode of the Zeitgeist. Thanks for listening to the Zeitgeist a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören!